Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studio in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, Joe Puzz, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management with our special guests. We're also so pleased to have PM Master Prep as our sponsor, and we've built a great relationship with Scott and Michael. They offer great solutions for preparing for the PMP exam, and let's take a moment to hear from Scott. If you're studying for the PMP exam, how excited are you to memorize the 756 pages of the PMBOK? You see, when I was studying, I realized that cramming facts in my head wasn't only not going to help me pass, but it wasn't going to make me a better project manager. So I abandoned what the experts told me, and I created a method that delivered an above-target score without memorizing a thing. You heard me, memorizing nothing. The power of my method is in three simple changes that help you make and cement all the connections you need to ace the exam's situational questions. I've distilled my method into a book, e-course, simulator, and training class that transforms how you or your team learn PMP. My name is Scott Payne, and I want you to be successful in the PMP exam. Go to pmmasterprep.com and learn how my PMP training method works and use the code PMOJOE to receive 20% off every product that will make you battle ready for the PMP exam. So it's so great to have Scott and the PM Master Prep team on board with us. What a fantastic offer for our listeners, right? 20% off. So please visit pmmasterprep.com. Use promo code PMOJOE. Also want to thank the PMO squad. They're the home of the purpose-driven PMO. And of course, the purpose-driven PMO empowers people to deliver results. So visit www.thepmosquad.com to learn more about the purpose-driven PMO. I've got a couple of special guests in studio with me today that are off mic, so they won't be joining the conversation. But one of them is my youngest son, Gabe, and just wanted to give him a shout out today to say, good luck, Gabe. Next week, we're headed off to Texas. Gabe is competing in the national math competition, representing the state of Arizona in the third grade competition. So that's going to be a really cool experience for us out at Texas A&M University. Also, super excited to talk about VPMMA, which is the Veteran Project Manager Mentoring Alliance. That is now officially founded, and we are live where we are working with military members, veterans, and spouses, supporting them through mentoring, networking, and uh, professional support. This is a nonprofit organization that my good friend Eric Wright and I from Vets to PM have co-founded. We were at Luke Air Force Base here in Phoenix this past Monday, delivering a session to them. And we really want to thank everybody that has helped us get to this point. Uh, We've been in a proof of concept for a little over a year. um, And guests of ours on this show, including Kenneth Stennis from Sensei Project Solutions, Warwick Pond from ASU, the Phoenix PMI chapter, Kevin Jacobs, and so many more have been great partners to us to help us get this off and running. So uh, for all of the project management industry out there, if you're looking to mentor veterans and military members and their spouses and transitioning into a career in project management, check out VPMMA, uh, and we appreciate all of your support. 
Also, a reminder to everybody that we are live and we can prove it by you asking us a question on Twitter. If you tweet your question using tagging it with hashtag PMO Joe, we'll get to that live on air. So let's get into it, right? He, we have with us today two fantastic leaders in the industry, Steve Fulmer and Daryl Gardner. So welcome, Steve and Daryl. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for letting me be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's, uh, hey, Steve. Yep. Daryl, give you a moment to jump in and, and introduce yourself to the listeners and share a little bit about you. Uh, sure. So uh, again, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I've spoken with Steve a little bit before, so looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, my background is uh, in the IT world. Basically, I was a, a programmer out of college and uh, developed into networking. Um, my, my claim to fame is I was one of the first NetWare uh, certified folks that went through their coursework in Atlanta and uh, have developed my career over the, the years through director of IT and then kind of transitioned into project management after that. Um, being a, a coder as I was, I've developed all kinds of tools over the years. And then the product that we have now, which is PM on a box, is really a culmination of implementing that tool set onto an online SaaS format for uh, having control in a centralized location for all the different tools that help manage projects as well as portfolios. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And going back six plus years or so when I was starting up the PMO squad, <clears throat> one of the names I was looking at was PMO in the box. So it's uh, finally six years later, we get to meet uh, and see who owned that so that I couldn't uh, take it on. So welcome and look forward to the conversation today. <laughs> Thanks. And Steve, share a little bit with the audience, if you would, please. Um, this is going to be interesting. I've got an eclectic mix, which is what we discovered when I visited with Daryl over the phone a couple of weeks ago. My family said, go become a doctor. So I struggled forward to try to do that, taking chemistry and, and biology classes. Realized it's not what I really wanted, but when your parents say this is what you're doing, it's what you do. I didn't get into medical school. They could tell it wasn't in my heart. Went on to graduate school in neurochemistry to try to keep the trend of satisfy the family. And uh, in the process of that, got a part-time job at Honeywell Supercomputers designing I.O. systems. Totally randomly. I knew I wanted to be an engineer, so I said, I'm done with the Ph.D. neurochem thing. Jumped in, helped design supercomputer I.O. systems for five years, and then the division was sold. They gave me two years of severance, hopped into, oh, gee, I'm going to do microcomputer PC networking. And in the process of the bank, uh, that Wells Fargo Bank, well, First Interstate at the time found me and said, we need you to data mine our mainframe and figure out how to do distributed computing. So I actually designed the first PC networks for the banking industry for First Interstate. And in the process of doing that, they made me a security officer because I knew how to secure the interfaces between the systems. That threw me into being uh, essentially their lead for access to the internet. So I actually monitored the first firewall symposium at Stanford University early in my career. And, and I became a project manager. And I learned before I knew what that meant, that project managers lean into technology when everybody else leans back. And I continued to do that. I worked for AG Communication Systems, uh, AT&T, GTE, Bell Labs uh, for about nine years, constantly leaning in. And the CIO who had hired me when he was a manager said, we're going to start a PMO. And I'm going to take 24 of you and put you through a week-long class to figure out which one of you can be a formal project manager. And I fought. I screamed, I'm not a PMO, I'm not a project manager, I hate it, get me out of here, I'm not doing this. I sat as close to the door as I could trying to get out. 
And the instructor for the class who became my mentor was Ed O'Connor, who'd written several books for PMP, for uh, Element K, for project management. So I sat the class trying to get literally out every day. And by the end of the first day, he told the CIO, Steve's a natural project manager. He ought to be one of your core people. And I fought for the next four days and got tapped on uh, that Friday, tag, you're a project manager. And I leaned into it because it was my job. And I did not go to sit for the PMP until three years later in 2004. And there's a whole side story on that, but uh, got into it. As soon as I finished my PMP, Ed came back and he said, uh, Steve, you really understand this. I need an editor for my book, Courseware, for the third edition of the PMBOK. And I served as his editor for the third, fourth, and fifth editions of the PMBOK. And he passed three years ago of cancer, and I truly miss him. And his widow passed the rights of that to the owner of the company I do instruction for, Interface Technical Training. And I got to be the rights as the sole author for the edition of his book for the sixth edition of the Project Management Body of Knowledge. That's awesome. So full circle. So, I mean, yes, it's eclectic. How did I get here? I love project management. I've always been a project manager. I just denied it in myself. And the full circle is, is I apply what I learned in neurochemistry and, and technology together to try to make projects successful, and particularly PMOs, rather than just projects that stand alone. Yeah. I've had good fortune. Uh, first, I wouldn't say meeting, but seeing Steve at a PMI local chapter meeting where he was presenting, and then we've had lunch together and observed him teaching PMP exam work at uh, the organization he's at. So full circle, great to have you in the studio here as a guest. I appreciate that. Just a reminder again to everybody, if you're listening out there, and you have a question for Steve or Dale, you can tweet that in using hashtag PMO Joe. Kind of get into PMOs a little bit here. Obviously, a PMO Joe and the PMO squad. I've got a PMO interest. And Daryl, PMO in a box. I mean, where, how'd you come up with the name? What's the story behind that? And just some background on, on what you're doing with the PMO in the box. Sure. So we actually founded in 2013. So I, I wouldn't call us a startup per se, but in, in the world of uh, companies and, and SaaS tools specifically, we we're still considered in that phase. Um, we went live in 2014, uh, just over the years of doing project management and also being a, a nerd and a geekhead. Uh, I developed so many Excel-based tools and things that were just grandiose, automated, uh, and running projects. So, being a project manager, I was interested in making sure that I was efficient as possible, and that was great for me. I'm in there doing the meetings, managing everything else. And, and when it came to um, learning larger organizations and finding all the challenges that come with that, it really became apparent that uh, Excel was not going to solve my issues when it came to these large scale projects, especially when you're sharing things across the board. And you know, back, back in the day, the early days of uh, shared storage and you think that you're going to be able to edit a document at the same time and you find out you're having you know, different versions start appearing and all the different um, headaches that, that deal with that. So the, the idea of that and with my database background was to how can I take all these great tools that I've created and put them into a single location and making sure that there's database-driven rules regarding locking records and updating and then communication-wise, how do I easily send information out to my team? And just the whole process of going through that really is what developed the, quote, PMO in a box. And it's, it's a little bit tough to say that it's, you know, there is nothing that's in a box. There's no solution that's in a box that's going to fit an organization. That's where consulting comes in. That's where 
the idea of you work with a company to determine what their culture is, determine what their needs are, but the concept of having at least a tool set that you can pull out and use those tools and get on the path to maturity for an organization, um, that's really what drove the concept to that. And dealing with some really large Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies even, uh, and, and finding out that they don't really have, you know, they say they have a PMO, but, and this is what Steve and I talked about in depth, as the reality of, of a PMO is so different for every organization, whether they're on the front end of the decisioning process of governance of this is what we require to do a project versus the implementation of the project of how are we going to do that? What methodology will we use? Um, th that's really where the, the consulting comes in and the validation of that to the completion of, let's say, templates. You know, how We want to make sure that they run in this manner and just the adoption of it. And what Steve intrigued me about the whole time I was talking to him was the neurology, neuroscience of the decisioning and for me, the hardest thing for success or failure of any PMO is the adoption, right? It doesn't do you any good unless you have deep down adoption of whatever it is you're implementing, because it's going to fail without that. Yeah, and I, I think uh, certainly I think indirectly that was the conscious decision that we made to go with purpose-driven PMO to attach the beginning parts of success because all PMOs are going to be different, like you said, but they all have a common bond that there's some purpose, there's some reason why they exist. And if you can find that purpose and have the organization rally around that, your adoption then can increase because they're not rallying around project management. They're rallying around the purpose of why you're operating as project managers. Correct. And uh, we've had some great success with that. Steve, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, right? If, when I think about project management and there's so much change management involved in that and there's chaos of change management, what is, what's the chaos of change in, in your thoughts on PMOs? You know, chaos of change is kind of it's the catchphrase I use for every one of my keynotes and my efforts. Um, I, I listen in on several of the uh, PMO Joe shows in the past. So I'm just going to pick up some of the phrases you picked. Sure. Segway for anybody who's listened to the sequence. Uh, Joe talked about fear and change management. And I think one of your guests talked about, oh, I don't think humans are really directly opposed to change, but we are. It's genetically who we are. Uh, Kahneman, who got a Nobel Prize in finance, took from the field of neurochemistry the concept of we have fast and slow thought processes, fast neurons and slow neurons. And our fast neurons are the, the primitive, the reptile brain, the, the fight or flight mechanisms, what everybody's most familiar with. And you react using those neurons in your system in less than um, probably a tenth to two tenths of a second. Can't help it. And so anytime somebody shows you something that's not same in your brain, you instantly revolt. You say, nope, sorry, it's change. I don't want to do it. And you shut it down. Anything not same, right, which is what change is, causes you to say, I don't want to do this before you even logically process it out. It's the slow thought neurons, right? The slow thought process where you do things like um, value, where you look for value, where you look for what will happen in the future if I do or do not do this. It's frontal lobe thinking. And our brain is not designed to do that if we've got excess external stimulus. And so it really is about the way humans think. And we are a cultural species. Um, if I were to go philosophical for just a moment, of all of the species of plants and animals, this is my zoology biochemistry coming in here, all the species of animals and plants on this planet 
they are all totally driven by their genetics and the environment in which they survive. So they don't have a choice. Humans are the one species on the planet that has and uses choice to adapt ourselves or to adapt the environment. And we only do that as a society species rather than singularly. That's how we are stronger than the lions and, you know, mightier than the trees that we fell. And projects really are all about affecting change. You know, we want to get to a new place. We say, let's go and we know it will be work. And survey says, it's just an uphill climb. Let's start climbing. But that's not the way it works. Every change that we implement, we inherently know we're going to have something break down, that it's going to be a period of disruption before we get anywhere near the goal. It's kind of, they talk about the grief curve and all these curves that they put in there. You have to go down before you go up. And people won't do that. They just inherently don't want to. So the tools of project management cause that time frame. If you look at, you know, the X and the Y axis, the X axis being time, they cause that time frame to be shorter. And that's where Agile got really popular, make the time frame shorter. But what we don't look at is the deflection, how far down the curve we go before we start climbing back up to point of comfort. And you want to lose weight. I'm working on that. You've got to have the no pain, no gain. It's going to hurt. You've mm -hmm. got to lose the fat before you get to the, you know, where the muscle's coming. If you're all muscular, then you've got to break down muscle tissue to have attachment points for new muscle. It just has to be kind of shredded by what you do. And that's the way we are as people in society as well. So, you know, why the PMO trying to bring that conversation back into full circle? Projects have the tools that help you affect the change. But if you don't use the slowed thought neurons and get the why, get the value, get the real decision process, the decision process that Daryl talks about involved first, then people can start to make change, but it's not sustainable. Go pay for the trainer. You won't keep doing it if you don't have the right purpose. So, you know, that's the PMO is that filter that keeps us thinking long-term so that projects can affect deliverables in the short term. And if you've got the right PMO, it really is about the soft skills, the decisioning processes and guiding tools. And this is where I think the PMO toolbox is a great idea. It's not just let's learn everything in the PMBOK and then throw a solution in that matches cost or schedule. It's what tools match the culture of this particular company, this particular organization. Because now you're matching culture and vision to the right tools that affect change that everybody will adopt. And so that, that's the mixture between the two. So Steve, let, let me add one thing to that. I think if you were to actually separate that process of adaptation and you know, why, why a PMO and why are we doing this? If, if that slow thought process you're talking about, that's one method of, okay, they're smart enough of an organization or mature enough to actually go down that path. We are going to impact or affect change to the organization because we want to get better. And they think about that. The other instigator of the process is pain, right? You talk about chaos of, of the world, but pain. When things are failing, when things aren't going right, if there's enough pain, that will elicit change as well. So there's, there's one's a, a, a decision to get there and one is a, I've got to do this because I can't take it anymore. So I'm wondering, right? So I've, I've been there, right? I've run a PMO and I felt the corporate pain of needing the PMO and then what we were, we weren't delivering well enough, right? And, and for me, that's lessons learned to be able to take into a consulting practice to help organizations not have to deal with that. So Daryl, what are some of those pains 
that organizations feel and then how do we help them overcome them? Not to get too detailed, but the inconsistency, and this is really where the uh, charter of the PMO isn't well-defined enough. Uh, what is the purpose? What, what is our end goal? What is our success statement as a PMO? And if everything they're doing doesn't drive to that, then it's, it's not being done properly. It's not taking you to your end goal. And you can apply that same mentality all the way down to task management in, within the projects, right? The, the, the five W's and the one H. We know how we're going to get there, but we need to know why we're going to get there. And everything we do in that process has to at least be um, adding towards the why. If it's not, it's it's taking you in a different direction. You're going down a rabbit hole. You shouldn't be doing that. So as a PMO organization, the failures that I see are inconsistencies with how they're actually managing and running their projects. Standards. And I hate to say it, but governance. Um and Steve and I talked about this before. So governance is a, a slippery slope. It's, the size of the organization really matters with organization. The smaller the organization, you don't necessarily need that type of governance because it's just overhead that you either can't afford or you don't want to take the time to use. But as your organization grows and the number of projects, and, and literally if you're dealing with a Fortune 100 company, there's thousands of, of projects going on. And without some sort of governance, that's where that chaos creeps in. And that's where you have that problem of we're not managing this in a consistent manner. And for me, the tools that are used help to drive that as well as the organizational mindset in the team that's a top-down decisioning process has to be filtered through that organization of how and why you're doing this. And so taking that maybe a step further and either one of you jump in on this, right, is we have an audience out there of, X hundreds of thousands of listeners that are going to listen to both of you talk about this. And a good part of them are PMO leaders, right? And, and maybe they're starting to feel something slip away, their control of their organization that, that you're talking about. What's the advice, right? What's the guidance that we can give to them to try to maybe identify and then correct what you're talking about there? I'll try to throw in a couple of anchor points. And so clearly we could spend more than an hour going down any one of these in some detail. <laughs> of course. I did it with Joe. I did it with Daryl. So yeah, we can easily <laughs> do that. Let's say that the fast thought neurons, the ones that actually in our brains are fired off by the drugs like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. D-O-S-E is the acronym that they use to try to remind people. Um, pain and pleasure are kicked off by those. If uh, any of you've watched the, the movie Up and Doug the dog who goes squirrel you know, all of a sudden. Um, that's dopamine that's kicking that off. It's, it's what breaks through what's called our reticular formation. Reticular formation is wrapped around the reptilian and primitive brain and stops us from catching all this stuff that's going along beside us so we don't get absolutely distracted and drive off the road every time we looky-loo at something. Um, the challenge with that is, is we have two little parts of the brain that have about 20 minutes store of dopamine in them. And if you are constantly stimulated by the phone, the text, the car, the sirens, the lights, the noises, video games, after 20 minutes of constantly using those drugs, they're gone. And your brain has no clue that you have none of them left. It's going to take you two to three hours if you have good nutrition in your system to cycle the toxins out of your brain and then be able to make another fast decision. That's the fast thinking. That's the reactive thought. It's what we call survival. It's what's designed to cause us to survive, not thrive. And you won't know when it's gone. I mean, you just won't know that you're, you've depleted those chemicals for a while. You have stores of the dopamine and other neurotransmitters and blood sugars in part of your brain, the frontal lobes, that allow you to do 
longer thought. And that thought process will last for about 90 minutes before it has to be replaced. So top success people, Darren Hardy is one of the people, Success Magazine, that is one of my current mentors, talks about you have three 90-minute periods a day to do deep process-focused thought, to get concentrated work done, to plan, to, to go where you're going. And that's it. And you've got to have time in between the cycles. So everybody says, we need to react. We're, oh my gosh, you know, survival, help me, help me, help me. You're doing all of the, the, the fast thought neurons to try to deal with stuff. It's all emotional. I guess I call it passion-based decisions. To be successful at projects or program management, you have to have purpose, the why. And if I were to compare the fast and slow thought neurons, those fast ones are passion-based. And all of us can take this any TMI direction you want. Passion fades, <laughs> it lapses, but purpose is sustainable. You can get up every day on a bad day in any relationship with job, with life. If you have purpose, you can make it happen. That's the slow thought. That's the associative and sequential, deep penetrating part of your brain that keeps you going when nothing else works. So it's where Daryl talks about the why, the purpose. He's using exactly the right words and they're totally associated with the process of project management and, and PMOs. If you don't have the right purpose and the why, you can constantly react. It just doesn't sustain itself. I like the idea of agile methodologies, but they're very reactive. They're thrown and everybody wants to be agile because they really believe that it works. But even PMI says somewhere between 9 and 15% of projects success with, are successful with an agile methodology. The rest fail in the world agile because the culture doesn't exist. You can't constantly do little changes without a purpose. And you have to take breaks. That's why we talk about sprints and a break in between the sprints. You know, rest, recover. It really works in how we do society as humans as much as it does as individuals. And it's really how projects have to work. I mean, I'd love to meet the governor of the state of Arizona, Doug Ducey. I've said this several times because he came in and said, we need to be agile in all of the departments in Arizona. And part of me says, I, I get what he's saying. But if there's not a good purpose behind it, I don't want to be the person who drives across a bridge that's built in two-week sprints. Right. You know, if there's not a good plan first, build it sprint, but plan it purpose-driven, long-term. Right. Well, and, and also, I think we discussed this as well, and this would, speaking of rabbit holes, we could go down to the, the quote methodologies that people infer of agile versus waterfall as an example which that's a mistake. It's, it's, not a, it's an implementation method of running a project. The methodology of how are you going to run your PMO and your projects is out and above that. You might have both Agile as well as Waterfall in your um, execution of your projects, but you still are going to go through a phasing process. You still are going to make sure that you are um, making sure that everything that you're doing within those projects matches the why of the organization to accomplish that project. So I, I think it's really important for people to make sure that they understand that. It's not agile versus waterfall. Those, that's just because it makes sense for that particular project of the implementation of the project, not the methodology of how you run your projects. Absolutely correct. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I, you have to have both and you can't dictate which works. Uh, I compare, you know, th survive and thrive. If you want to survive, you can keep reacting. You can do the fast change, fast response. If you want to thrive, you've got to have a bigger purpose that's longer lasting. And, and, you know, thrive and purpose kind of go together. And so the methodology doesn't matter. 
Well, it does. You've got to pick one that matches your culture and the scenario you're trying to achieve. So I won't say it doesn't matter at all. But before you even get to that decision, you've got to know what your purpose or your why is and have it really well defined. In the movie industry, they talk about a one or two week phrase, uh, one or two sentence phrase that they tack on the outside of a script to sell it. And if that one or two sentence phrase doesn't, no one opens the scripts and reads it in the movie industry. I don't care what wonderful script it is. And so they have to barrel it down to, you know, this little tiny two sentences. What's the, what's the motive that all the primary or principal actors have to understand before they even open the script to read it? And that's what sells it. It's, it's, the, it's the purpose, not the, the day-to-day up and down, you know, let's write this, this script that's got three acts. And that's really what you have to have before you can move forward with a project or a set of projects called a program. And the PMO has really got to be what helps identify that, that two sentence, that something that's better than just, I have a big vision. How do we take the vision into action? And that's where the PMO role plays a big, big part of any successful project. Right. Repeatable process. And, and if the repeatable process is not driving to success, you're repeating something that's going to be unsuccessful. You're going to fail when you continue to do something that's not working. So that's why the, everybody's heard of the term smart, right? For in project management. And in my talks that I give, I also talk about being smarter. So once you execute on uh, the process, you need to review. And the review has two processes. One, are, are we still working? And two, are whatever it is we're doing going to the why of the organization? Two steps on that review. Make sure that what we're doing is still working and don't be afraid to change it if it's failing, i.e. the pain points. And two, is it taking us towards our ultimate goal? Well, I, I think I can probably guarantee that Governor Ducey is listening, right? I mean, why would he not be listening at this time to our show? <laughs> So, Governor, when you want to come on, we can bring Steve on as well, and we can have a discussion about that. We'd love to have you join us. Love to do it. I think his, I think his goal is, uh, well, at least coming in, was that, you know, we need to clean up things and be better or more responsive. I get that. But when you say ad- agile rather than adaptive or how you're talking about it, every department, because I train a lot of them, every department was trying to implement an agile methodology. So they're trying to do, you know, scrum sprint for everything. And again, the concept is correct, but the terminology doesn't make sense. And that's because of the way the human mind works to associate these ideas. And, and, and when it doesn't work in their head, it doesn't work in their heart. And they kind of say, oops, nope, I don't adopt that. I'm done. And now you have no buy-in. Now, good luck getting the team to work together. Right. The, the other thing I'm learning from this is I should hire you two to be my pitch man for the purpose-driven PMO because you, <laughs> you, the reason I came up with the concept, you two are explaining it much better than I could. And, uh, and I'm 100% on board with what you're saying. It, you know, another part of the PMO, right, is decision-making. And often over what's overlooked is should we or shouldn't we do the project? You know, we think project management because we're always doing so, Daryl, I know you've, you've got some thoughts on the PMO and whether or not they're involved in those decision-making processes. Yeah, so the, the, the concept of what a PMO is is confusing in many organizations. And, and to me, this is probably the problem and, and sometimes the failure of, of what their job is. So if it's not clearly defined, and to me, I divide up the implementation of projects for organization into two, two areas. The first area is the decisioning of we are going to do this project. And that has different tools and, and 
you know, I'll give a shout out here. So there, there's two different companies that that I've worked with that we thought that we were competitors. We had a discussion one day and found out that, oh gosh, we don't even deal with the same thing, yet we're both in the PMO space. And uh, Pivotal Innovation and Transparent Choice, um, they, they have these tools about the decisioning factor. And there's a whole process that you go through of, and this involves governance, it involves budgeting, it involves all the things that you think of for project management, but it's really about, the, you know, do we even implement this to go forward. So that, that first half is the decisioning process. And the second half is the implementation process. How do we implement once it's approved, once we have our, our basic budget that we, we want to move forward with, if we're going to hand this off to either the direct organization that's going to do this. And, and this is where things kind of, many PMOs are set up as a governance model. We suggest you do this. You need to make sure you have these deliverables and they hand it off. And then once that, whether it's an IT organization, whether it's in healthcare or software development, whatever it might be, they're kind of on their own to implement the project. They just have to follow these rules of engagement versus a PMO that actually supplies the project managers to run and actually uses predefined templates, all the, you know, what I call a fully mature organization that's going to top down, make sure that finishes completely because they're actually taking the process that's been developed and applying it versus having it just taken and run with, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful because you know the department or organization that's running the implementation knows what they're trying to do. They they get that process. So you know that's that's where there's muddy waters, if you will, on the implementation side. Uh, but the question for me is, is where is the PMO in that? Is the PMO on the decisioning and the implementation? Is it just the implementation? Is it just the decision in the governments? And that's where it's different. At every organization, it's different. And knowing what that role is and identifying it and making sure that you know everybody involved understands what their role are. Um, I wish you guys could see my, my arms are flailing as I'm speaking here. I feel like I'm in front of a group. <laughs> Coming to you next, Project Management Office Hours, the TV show. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, I, and I guess, Steve, this ties into what you've been talking about, your your fast twitch muscle for thinking and your long-term muscle for thinking, right? Is it does. how do you make decisions? Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll throw another piece, another layer on top of that. Um, and I'm going to, I don't know what time we'll have to do this, but I'll, at least in case anybody listening wants to go look it up, the work of uh, Dr. Barbara Troutline um, and her book, Change Intelligence. And then uh, some of the work of Frank or Francis Sopper, who is uh, the founder of Open Book Learning and uh, now one of the president and owners of GTD Focus, GTT being um, getting things done by David Allen, and he's merged with David Allen uh, to expand that work. And so the two of them have evolved uh, their efforts, so Dr. Troutline and Frank, uh, from understanding of neuropsychology and education and learning and how people adopt new information. So that's really the key there is how people adopt uh, content. Um, and Daryl's right on. He's hitting two of the pieces of Dr. Troutline's work without knowing it uh, and implying the third piece. And uh, just step backwards and then move forward quickly here. Uh, we first started understanding uh, IQ, Stanford Binet, back in 1910. And then it's only 2003 that uh, the books by Goldman and others that start talking about EQ, emotional intelligence and human beings. And those are aspects of who we are biochemically, neurologically. Uh, Dr. Troutline's work is in the you know, 2013-14 area, her book published, uh, Over Change Intelligence. And it's how humans 
actually deal with change. Now you can react that survive mode, or you can choose to be a leader. So it's the thrive mode. What do you do if you choose to lead? In other words, have purpose through change. Then that's the way I interpret. I'm, I'm certified for her. So I'm trying not to, to state the whole thing and use her terminology. But in her studies, she's demonstrated that when you face somebody with a situation that requires change, they're either going to be high head. In other words, they're going to see the vision. They're going to get a sense of the purpose and where they need to go. They're going to tend to be high heart. That means they understand the social, the people, get people to buy in. Or they're going to be high hands. They're going to be the people who understand what to do. And we're all a mixture of those. And there's kind of seven quadrants in this, this pyramid as we shift between them. And no human being, well, there's a center of it called adapters, you know, people who adapt to it. But we all are actually neurochemically wired to tend to have a tendency that's one type of this or another. And, and just to, to, without going through the whole model, she wouldn't appreciate it if I didn't try to give you some sense of it. The person who's the high head or visionary sees the goal. And if you're somebody who's truly, truly high head visionary, you see the goal so clearly you're focused on that. You tend not to think about what the impact will be on people. And you tend not to, to think as heavily on how will you get it done. If you're somebody who's high heart, you, you see what it's going to take to get everybody in, but you might not see the goal as clearly or how to do it. If you're a high hands person, you're a doer, you just kind of innately know what you have to do to go get things done and you'll jump in to do it. But there's failures in each of those quadrants if you're at an extreme of any of them. And so, for instance, the high hands person, the doer, will often do the ready, shoot, aim kind of approach to it. So they didn't get the big vision before they want it. And they might shoot before everybody's on board. The person who's the high heart, the, the drawback to that is, is they're going to wait till everybody buys in before they make a decision right? The train's left the station and nobody's on board. Uh, the high visionary person absolutely knows where they're going. They know where the train's bound. They pay for all the tickets. They get aboard the train. They look left and right, and there's nobody with them. And, and that's what happens. So how does that relate to the PMO? You've got to have some organization that understands that you've got people with the vision. You've got people who inherently understand how to interact with other people, the society <laughs> aspect. And you've got people who inherently know what the tools are. And that's who we are as people dealing with leaders to affect change. A, a successful team, and this is the studies of Barbara Troutline, and, and her book gives this, and she has more if you, you know, go to her website and contact. Um, she'd be a great guest on the show. That's just my pitch for her. Um, rather than trying to sell her whole story, it, it shows that in an organization, if you don't have the right mixture of all three types, you won't have successful change, whether it's a project or process, because you don't have a mixture that's sustainable that can keep it all going. And that's just based on the studies of who we are as human beings in neurosociology. Um, and I'll pause there before I hit any of Frank's work, just to comments from Daryl or, or Joe to, to kind of drive it forward for your audience. Well, real quick, and, and my statement earlier about the adoption. So this is the success rate of implementing a PMO. That is key. Um, and, and that's a technical, what I consider to be a technical reasoning as to why. But if you look at the failures of implementation of PMOs, the combination of all three of those different personality types and what Steve's talking about there is, you know, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly why PMOs fail is because they do not have the right um, combination of all three of those. And I, I could not state it as technically as Steve just did, but that is exactly, you know, great statement, Steve. <laughs> I think that's a, a way to put in words exactly why PMOs fail. And I think what's, first of all, I, 
you know, when I started the radio show, I was like, why in the world am I doing a radio show? I'm a project manager. And it's conversations like this are the reason why we're doing the radio show. Uh, we had Ruth Pierce was on previously, and she was talking about EQ through her book, The Project Motivator, and using character strengths to identify team members and, and how to utilize them. Judy Umless was on in the Center of Gratitude, talking how gratitude is important and how to utilize that. We as project managers and, and leaders fail, and I want to get your thoughts on this, both of you. The PMO fails not because we don't know how to execute projects. It's because this discussion we're having now is never brought to the leaders of a PMO to teach them about the people and while they're leaders. So organizations haven't yet caught on that we need this sort of training as opposed to just a PMP. And Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what drove me to it, particularly in editing Ed's books for project management and then becoming the author and, and attending PMI Global Congresses and watching the shift and who the keynote speakers are. Uh, projects fail when all we use is the tools. And that's pretty much what the PMP was for years. Learn the tools, you know, the process groups by the knowledge areas. And, and that's what the test is, learn the tools, but not <laughs> the soft skill sets. And so as I rewrote the course and as I teach it, I probably spend 40% of my time trying to help potential project managers or ones with experience to understand the soft skills. And they're the harder part to teach. You got to have a model, but it's got to be practiced. And, and there's more to it because humans are more complex. So Barbara's model is perfect, but I mentioned Frank Sopper and Frank, it, it, another eclectic person, which is maybe what uh, attracts me to him. Um, he learned that he was not learning in school the way that other people did. And so he says, I want to study this. And so his whole concept with open book learning was to help understand how other people think. So he started doing studies of his own about education and learning, which is what drove me to him is learning how to teach this material, the soft skills in a classroom better. And the first aspect of that is that, and again, it's sort of the, the fast and slow. Humans associate content. Sesame Street had it right, right? One of these things doesn't belong here. One of these things isn't the same. We pick that up instantly to retain information as kids. But other humans also think sequentially. They put things in a, in a sequential pattern, a list, A, B, C, D, do this and this and this. And all human beings use both of those in our brains. But as we grow up, it's both the, the nature, our brain wiring, and the nurture, what we're reinforced when we're young. So it's really both. It's not one or the other that guide us to how we accept what's happening in our environment. And so you capture everything that happens to you all day long. They've sprung out the neurons in the brain, and we know we have 2 billion of them. But when they measure, functional MRIs have been around for about a decade. So this is new knowledge in terms of measurement. Um, only about 2,000 of those 2 billion neurons are working in any, like, I'll call it sub-second cycle. I don't know how many millions there are in humans. Consciously, all the rest of it's subconscious. We're all, those of you listening and those of us talking, are, your heart's beating, you're breathing. My hands are moving just like Daryl's were. And, and we're doing those things subconsciously, but you're taking it all in. Your brain is processing all of it. That's where cognitive dissonance, if we don't have a connection, illusions and magic work because our brain fills in the gaps, either associatively or sequentially, you have to find some frame sequentially that works or some associative to fill the box. And if you don't, cognitive dissonance says, I, I reject it. Right. And, and if we talk about confirmation bias, you will look for things that fill the gaps in your brain because you're uncomfortable, literally nervously uncomfortable when you don't fill those gaps in. And so we're all associative and sequential thinkers. 
But Frank's work was to study and say, you know, are we all one or all the other? And you can be tested to find out whether you're primarily associative or sequential. And he says, is that all there is? So he went further to say, well, how does the brain work for learning? So Bloom's taxonomy back in the 50s to bring it more current. And and I use this because my son is gifted to, to figure out why does he learn differently than everybody else? And without going into all of Frank's work, some of us are high visual cortex. So it's what we see that affects us. Some of us are high audio. So we listen, right? So there's probably people in the audience who are listening and picking up every word and processing it. And others will have to listen to the podcast again before they pick up all this information. There are people who are tactile. It's all of you listening who are fidgeting, tapping your hands. My wife's one of those. She's in thought process when she's spinning her finger through her blonde hair. And I learned not to talk when she's doing that. She's got to finish the thought before she speaks. So there's several different types. That's just how we're wired. So if you're a project manager and you're dealing with all these different people and you're trying to get a message through to them and the message is in your modality, not their modality. And so, I mean, we've talked about the high thinkers, the high heart, the high hands. And now we're talking how people take stimulus and information in. Some of them need to see the picture. Some of them have to touch the prototype. Some of them have to speak out loud. Steve Jobs was a high oral. He couldn't think unless he could talk out loud. And it wasn't his walking for hours that people talked about. He'd stop, non-talk stopping or non-stop talking for those, those hours. And that was his working through an idea until it was concrete enough to take forward. If you don't understand that about people, then you can't make the link between a big purpose or an idea and how they're going to execute it. Those are soft skills. That's understanding. And that's the PMO's role is to take that purpose and communicate it to the team, the customers, the internal stakeholders, et cetera. And that's the hard part of project management. And that's really where the PMO's the glue. Once everybody's on the train underway, the tools work really well. But if you don't have the right people on the train and the right concept before they get on all where they're going and why they're going, somebody wants off at the next stop. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering, Daryl, in your perspective on this, right, going through all of those different characteristics that Steve's referring to us, we still have projects that we come to a point where we need to stop them, right? Right. Because you think projects need to go from beginning to end, but during that process, you find out, hey, the project isn't going to achieve what we want. We need to stop them. How do you do that? Do you ever give up on that project? Because some of the, the thought process, right, the different mindsets that we have as people, how does that come into play? Well, that, that goes back to the why. And if you're not constantly, um, basically, if you have a target and in the center of that target is your success statement of the project. And as you are doing your status, as you're you know, running your project, you're constantly looking back to that target and what I'm doing leading to that target. Well, guess what? Sometimes that target changes. Sometimes the organization changes the uh, direction that they're working in. So this project doesn't necessarily fit what the new why is. And, and guess what? If that's the case, then it's better to stop that project because it's no longer taking me to the organizational goal uh, or direction that we want to go into. So by all means, yes, you, projects do stop. And a lot of times they might stop just because of uh, internal battling, let's say, where there's not support across the organization for larger companies for that to be completed, whether it's budget, whether it is um, the right direction because of the organization or potentially maybe a buyout or all the different things that occur that would change that. But to long, long answer short is uh, definitely projects can get put on hold or stopped because that's the best thing to do. 
you don't want to spin your wheels and spend time and money on resources that are working towards something that doesn't affect the company appropriately. And I, I couldn't agree more. I go back to the, you know, we say the why, the purpose. Your purpose is based on your perception. And if the perception of the facts that guided the perception, if you discover the facts are different or the situation that those facts were framed in changes, then you have to change your purpose. Uh, right. You, you commit yourself to, at least I did, you know, to, to my wife in marriage, but I guarantee you, you have kids and instantly it changes. So my purpose changed when we had our son and again, when we had our daughter. And that's right. not to say it was wrong, but the project plan had to change right? Because the environment and my assumptions change and you don't know till you have kids. So any of you have got in the audience who've got kids, you get that. Your purpose changes and it's your perception that caused your purpose to change. It's not that suddenly I'll throw it out. It's, it's got to adapt. And, and that's the same in every organization. And the longer term the governance is, the business governance, that concept of sustainability, they will. We're in a totally technologically changing environment. So which new technology do you adopt tomorrow? I'm waiting for the PMO Joe to, stu- to go in the studio, but are they ready for that technology change? And is it sustainable to the goals that they've got? Those are the decisions that have to be made by a changing environment. You know, it, it's going to happen to every business. You have to reevaluate the why based on facts and perception. Right. I'll give you a quick story as to how that applies to me personally. So um, you talk about the uh, hands getting things done. That's definitely me. I'm a tools guy. My purpose or the things that I get out of life are basically that successful implementation of something that I can automate and reuse. And it's a tool. It's something I can do to do the job. Now, that being said, you know, ADHD to the max, right? My, I had my kid tested uh, at, at one point because you know he was going to having you know trouble in school because he couldn't focus properly and and ended up getting him tested. They they came back with that result saying okay, well he's got some issues there. And I said, well, is that hereditary? Yes, it is. So I got myself tested, and sure enough, um, I elicit the same type of um, behavior that ADHD kids do, but as an adult and. What I learned to do because of that was, and I was of the perception of, I'm a great multitasker. You know, ADHD, I can do 20 things at once. I'm just a good multitasker. And the reality is, is you can only focus on one thing at a time to get that one thing done, regardless if you jump back and forth to 12 tasks at once. The concept of jumping between tasks is taking time. So the reality is, and this is something I had to understand, is even though I'm working on 12 things, I'm actually taking more things to get all 12 things done because of the time it takes to switch between. And when I understood that, I was able to step back and, and kind of say, okay, well, that's not working. I thought it was. I thought I was really good at it. But the reality was I was spending 12-hour days, which could have been eight-hour days, in getting things done. And applying that concept, both mentally of, of the hands-on to... Um, looking at the overall vision of what we're trying to do, that was really a key effort for me personally. So just understanding the difference between what it takes to um, focus on tasks, even though my brain is wired to do five minutes on that and then five minutes on that and five minutes on that, to really step back and be able to, to control it's really the wrong word, but adapt to it. I'd, I'd say it's better. See, and see, there we go. Daryl learned exactly this concept of fast and slow thinking. Fast thinking is the, the human beings don't multitask. We're not physically capable of it. So everybody says, I'm a great multitasker. I hate to call them liars, but they are. It just means they don't <laughs> understand their own neurochemistry. We fast switch. 
And that's what that dopamine does. You've got 20 minutes of fast switch and then you're burned out for a while. So what Daryl's identified is he prefers to recognize that he is really good at fast switching, but it burns out and it doesn't get sustainable. And so he's moving over to those, those slow thought neurons and they really work well, well when you externalize them. So, you know, Darren Hardy, Success Magazine and Jim Rohn before him are telling us that you need to write down to-do lists. That's where getting things done from Dave Allen. But Dave Allen was losing some of his, well, not losing, not expanding his clientele like he thought because his methodology in his original book is designed on one mental organized thought process. But there are so many different humans that that's his merge with Frank Sopper is oh, wait, there's different ways that people need to organize. Some are good at fast switching. Some are better at, you know, the externalized, sustained, sequential lists. And once Daryl found his weakness, uh, you know, he loves to do one thing, but that doesn't sustain it. He found the tool set to offset. And so it's not that we all have to be, you know, let's externalize on lists or all we off to fat. You find the, the set of those that's best for you and the tools that compensate. And that's really where in projects and PMOs, the same thing. You find what the strengths and weaknesses of your team are. You figure out the tools that offset, right? Where you don't have the great strengths and you guide the team to find the right mixture. So, I mean, Daryl just right there saying, hey, I found it without understanding the model. And that's the challenge we have as project managers or PMO members and contractors and consultants. It's not about there's a tool. It's about there's many tools. Which one fit this culture and this situation with these people? So it's really a social approach. So projects, really, we talk about teams and the key stakeholders. That's really, you have to understand the stakeholders, not just their, write your list of needs and requirements down. How can you get them to adopt it and sustain that change? And Daryl, I'm curious, right, with that self-discovery that you had to go through, how did that translate into activity for either your clients or yourselves when it came to PMO activities, right? It was a self-realization, but I'm assuming you then took that out to your, your professional career as well. Well, part of that actually is, has to do with the development of the tools. Um, when, I, uh, when I look at how I was actually uh, managing, this is back to you know, being a programmer in the late 80s uh, of dealing that. So I was, I was a list guy for sure. I, I would just tack down that list and, and start attacking 12 things. And I got into the whole grouping model where you take items that are similar in nature so you can work on that group of items. So at least you are not distracting yourself outside of that realm, which makes you, you know, slightly more efficient. Um, and, and that process of doing that is, it's really an efficiency issue, right? So how did my clients and or my company that I worked for at the time uh, benefit was I became more efficient. Um, my work ethic in nature didn't necessarily change my 12 hours days to an eight hour day. Uh, I just did, instead of taking 12 hours to get the things done, I got done. I got them done in eight. And I just did another X amount up to the 12. <laughs> so it's just a matter of applying more. Um, now that's not necessarily good for work-life balance, but uh, from a professional perspective and getting things done perspective, um, I was very efficient at it. Now, it, one thing it did do as far as the development of PM on a box is it's a very adaptable product, meaning it's data-driven. So because of my knowledge of working with so many different organizations, so many different methodologies, um, I, I designed it in such a manner that it could adapt to however that particular organization wants to use it. 
And, and it's really come because it's data-driven. So you change some data and it operates a little bit different here or there. And it fits more of a culture implementation than, than it does an actual, hey, this is how you've got to do this. If you use this tool, and this, again, that's where failure occurs. If you force things down, square peg, round hole, uh, it, it's not going to succeed. Well, I think what we're, we're learning from today, right, is we're all project managers and PMO leaders that listen to the show, but we're people first. And if we don't understand the people side of our profession, we're going to have failure and we're not going to be successful. Exactly. And um, with that, I mean, we're coming up on the end of our hour, which I had promised would go quicker than you thought it would. <laughs> so thank you, uh, Daryl and Steve, so much for being with me today. And I want to give the audience uh, one last opportunity to hear from you what maybe we didn't get a chance to cover today or how they can reach you if they want to follow up. So Daryl, we'll start with you. Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, fairly visible. So just do a search for Daryl Gardner. If you want to look at our, our product, it's pmo.me, pmo.me. So that is our website. And if you want to see the tool in action, you're more than welcome to sign up. There's a free trial. Um, anything that goes on there will be notified uh, to me as well, or you send me an email, info at pmo.me. Great. Thank you so much. And Steve, thanks also. Great. Same for you. That's my pleasure being here. Um, the Several ways to catch me. You can uh, find me on the Blue Sphere Solutions website. So Blue Sphere, as in the planet, solutions.com. That's a, a redirect to Blue Sphere, S-O-L-N, Sam October Luma Nancy, right? The abbreviation for solutions.com. And my email is Stephen at bluesphere.soln.com. Um, you can also find examples of uh, my training. And the reason I point this uh, out is Interface TT. That's Interface Technical Training, interfacett.com. And um, some of my training videos out there, but but on the topic of today, some of the keynotes that I've done have been posted out there as captured webinars. So for those of you who have got PMPs and looking for PDUs, you can watch the webinars and pick up an hour off of that. And I regularly keynote on change management and, and the topics we talked about today. So there's supplemental material through the company I'm fortunate enough to, to do education and training for as well. Thank you so much for being on. And Thank you to all our listeners out there. Uh, the reason why we're still doing this is because I hear your voice and you want me to keep bringing guests like these two on, and it's been fantastic. Speaking of webinars, I wanted to point out to everybody on July 10th, I'll be out on projectmanagement.com giving a webinar on the purpose-driven PMO. Uh, so a little bit of the content you heard today is a warm-up for what I'll be delivering on the 10th and look forward to hearing from all of you there. I do have some travel coming up, uh, so I won't be back on the 20th of June. Next show will be live on June 27th, and we're going to have uh, special guests Kim Curtis and Echo Wolf joining us. So I'm really looking forward to that show. Also, a reminder that these shows are recorded, right? We're not just live. We do release them as a podcast. So please subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on Apple um, podcast. I guess it's not iTunes anymore, right? Apple podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker. Uh, don't be bashful. Leave a review and a rating. Let us know what you like and what you don't like. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, which help us make all of this possible. PM Master Prep and the PMO Squad. If you visit pmmasterprep.com, use promo code PMO Joe, you'll receive 20% off of all the services that they provide out there. Well, that's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. Mm -hmm.